Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. It's Wade and Mike in the studio, continuing our series on the life and thought of Martin Luther. Luther has died. We're sad about that. Katie has passed on. But he's also in heaven. We're happy yep. about that. We're, we're happy for that. Katie has passed on after being a bit of a refugee for a little bit. Uh, she is also in heaven. Um, the children, we mentioned them. Um, uh, we didn't talk about their deaths. I assume that they are not 500 years old, but they are also in heaven. Um, and so now we're going to pivot to post-Luther kind of stuff. And we thought that maybe the best way to go about this, I thought maybe let's do post-Luther characters, post-Luther this. We may do that yet, but I think probably a better way to do it is to go through your book, An Uncompromising Gospel, Lutheranism's First Identity Crisis and Lessons for Today. Uh, you can get that at 1517. Um, this uh, book will give us a... Um, kind of a, a map to go through what happens after Luther dies. So probably what we'll, we'll do today is just say, hey, there's kind of a vacuum that occurs here. Um, what, what, is, what is filling that politically? What's filling that? Uh, what personalities fill that? And then our guide will be, okay, so here is the first major theological controversy that comes up. And how did, Luther, how did Lutherans post-Luther deal with that? So that will be, um, that will be our our map for going forward as we close out this long session, uh, this long series, I should say, of the life and thought of Martin Luther. So I had a, a former student, um, so I saw him, I was doing Bible class at a church, and uh, and good student, one of, probably one of the, my favorite students I've had, and uh, he, um, he said, I uh, saw so you guys finished the Luther series, and I said, oh no, it's not done, uh, Dr. Berg wants to keep it going. So we're going to do some post-Luther stuff, and he uh, <clears throat> married, has a kid, and he says, uh, do you know you guys started that before I was even dating my wife? <laughs> Very good. And he wasn't saying it critically, I no, don't think. but uh, It's been a while. But we've been... It's been a while. We've been going. Um, so if I say post-Luther, what's the first thing that comes to your mind as a person who rightfully is called a scholar in this area? You're that, talking that's about you. Oh, that's you. I'm asking the scholar in the, of this oh, era. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought. You were... uh, what's the like? What's the first thing that comes to your mind if you're going to explain post Luther, Wittenberg, post Luther, what we now know as Lutheranism? Yeah. So I think um, I think what makes sense with continuing it on is you want to continue it on is um, Luther dies and almost immediately there's debates about who was Luther and um, what is Luther's teaching, right? What does it mean to be an heir of Luther's theology? And you have a bunch of his former co-workers or students, um, many of them who are actually more former students of Melanchthon than Luther. Uh, they would have had Luther, but they would have had a lot more with Melanchthon. <clears throat> and their writing and their methodology probably is more Melanchthonian. Um, who are going to contend about this? And normally, like in a uh, in relative peace, in a time of stability, maybe things would have played out differently. Um, probably some religious colloquies, some opportunities to talk about teachings and to to kind of see where um, there was unity or disunity. But maybe with an opportunity to work through things and not in a way that was bitter with polemics. But uh, Luther dies and. Uh, 
the emperor invades. And we talked about that a little bit with the Katie um, session. And uh, the Schmalkaldic League <clears throat> loses. And the elector of Saxony, John Frederick, is taken captive, as is Landgrave Philip I <coughs> excuse me, of Hesse. And um, Moritz from Ducal Saxony had kind of been a turncoat and turned on his cousin, the elector John Frederick of Saxony, and sided with the emperor for some promises that uh, he would be able to re retain Lutheranism in his territory. And so he's going to help strike Lutheranism, what could have been a death blow, but for kind of like a promise of like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll let you guys do your thing. <clears throat> um, after that uh, happens, though, the emperor immediately sets to work on new religious policies. Uh, in Augsburg, it will be called an interim which is meant to be a stepping stone basically into reintegrating the Lutheran churches back into Roman Catholicism. Um, Moritz realizes there's no way this is going to go over in, in his new territory especially, but even his old territory. Um, there's been a lot of change as it is. And so he is going to set his new Wittenberg faculty to work <clears throat> on what's called the Leipzig Proposal, which says, well, here's some stuff we can compromise on. Um, but not as much as the Augsburg interim. And uh, the opponents of this are going to call it the Leipzig interim, associating it with the Augsburg interim. And so any hope of like, hey, let's have some conferences and talk about things, and maybe we should like put down on paper some of the things of uh, what it means to be part of a ch the Church of the Augsburg Confession. You know, there's some debates that have come up since then. Um, let's work through them. <coughs> Instead, you have Lutheranism as an existential crisis. Um, is it going to survive? And these debates um, are going to flow out of that and become very acrimonious because they're imbued with a lot of hurt feelings and hostilities about, um, you know, where are those in Wittenberg traitorous and those who worked with them, those who get called adiaphorous. And so the first debate will be over Adiaphora. Um, those behind the Leipzig proposal, the Leipzig interim, said, yes, we can compromise in these areas because they are just Adiaphora. Um, those who oppose this, and many of them will end up in, in Magdeburg, will say, as the formula of Concord will adopt, um, that in a time of controversy, nothing is an Adiaphora. So maybe here, Michael, to break up my voice talking too much, mm -hmm. um, when I came into Lutheranism, I became fascinated with this word mm -hmm. because even like very like like Lutherans who maybe weren't in church all the time, they'd gone through catechism though, they knew this word and used it. Um, adiaphoran, adiaphora, some other church bodies do talk about this, but it especially pops up in Lutheranism, kind of comes from the Stoics through Melanchthon. But the average Wells person says adiaphoran or adiaphora, Mike. What do you what do you take them to mean? What do you think they have in their head? Yeah. So, uh, what they probably mean is <coughs> whether they admit it or not is don't tell me what to do, <laughs> right? So, an an adiaphoran would be something that's neither commanded nor forbidden in the Bible. Uh, German uh, kind of gives us a little different uh, uh, wrinkle to middle ding is something in middle. Um, sometimes I've heard say it's not in the realm of the law or the realm of the gospel. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, certain examples would be, um, 
you know, are we going to um, sing the Gloria in Excelsis in Lent or not? Well, there, there's nothing. There's nothing written about that. Um, in a personal level, is it okay for me to um, have a glass of wine or a glass of beer or not? Right. Not on campus, though. It's a dry yeah, campus. Yeah. Not here. No. So, um, and but th- those are the type of questions there. They would say. Well, it's okay for me as a as a, a legal age to drink here, but because I'm on this campus, there is the authority that that I must obey. So it becomes a fourth commandment issue. So in that way, it is forbidden by Scripture. Um, when it comes to then my my adiaphora and my practice my, practicing my gospel freedom, um, you, you are saying, well, I I I will do this out of love. Um, for neighbor, right? So, so in America, we tend to have the, we tend to think about freedom as a personal freedom to do what we want. So that that's as deep as it often goes. Don't tell me what to do. Um, but it was just a silly example that that we've we've gone through before, and and it's an easy one to to help explain this to, like a college student, for instance, is to say you have the freedom to enjoy God's good gifts. We make a big deal about that. So at Thanksgiving dinner, if you want to have a glass of wine, um, enjoy it absolutely guilt-free, right? This is, a, this is a good thing. It's not just that you're allowed to it. This is a good thing. But if, if your Uncle Frank's an alcoholic and he's there, then you don't imbibe out of love for him. You, if you it's going like to trigger, but Uncle Frank right, might be cool right, with it. Right. Yeah. You sacrifice your freedom for the love of the neighbor. Now, if Uncle Frank is um, not an alcoholic and he... Uh, is uh, the type of Christian who says alcohol is it, consumption of alcohol is sinful, and that you are putting yourself into some sort of uh, danger here by sinning, maybe even out of the state of grace if you continue to insist that you have to have alcohol. Well, then, not only do you exercise your freedom in a sense like I, I do it because I want, you are you are almost called. It's your duty to exercise your freedom in this case, because it is, has to do with the gospel. Right. Right. So, um, I I can remember our professor, uh, David Kuski saying, you know, um, if, if the, if the Christian tells you, you can't drink alcohol, you open up a beer in front of them, crack open a beer in front of them. Right. That it's a silly example, but when it comes to, uh, let's say bigger questions, especially questions of, of worship, Mm -hmm. um, this becomes a very big deal where, um, if someone says that you are not going to be in a state of grace anymore, if you do something and that something is an, an, an adiaphron, then you are called to, I don't want to say fight for your freedom because that's kind of has a weird connotation, but maybe fight for your right to party. Yeah. You are, you are, you are called to say, because the, the, the gospel's on the line here. And this of course is, is Galatians, right? Through and through. Right. So this is not something that is, you know, we find from the church fathers or whatever. This is very biblical, right? right. Even if the right. word adiaphron is comes from a different point of view, a philosophical point of view, um, or it has a philosophical history rather than a biblical history, um, it is a very biblical, very New Testament um, doctrine. Yeah, so I think this gives us kind of the operating definition we'll use, and I think next session we'll go into more detail on it. <clears throat> but to note... Um, this debate then, uh, 
really threatens to undo Lutheranism. And you, you have certain holdout areas, and one of them will be Magdeburg, this city that will be laid siege um, by the emperor, but also by Moritz, and refuses to give in, and it's going to manage to hold out, and there will be a stalemate, um, and there'll be a peace that is uh, accomplished, um, in which neither side <clears throat> wins, so to speak. But Magdeburg is going to become um, responsible for a propaganda war. Um, they are just printing at a pace unseen since early Luther. Um, and they are printing stuff about what it is to be a Lutheran and how people are um, undermining what it is to be a Lutheran. Uh, to say Lutheran might be a little anachronistic there, but um, I mean, people were using the term. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so um, the question becomes, um, is it enough for an institution to remain? Right? And this is where I think Wittenberg is rightly faulted. <clears throat> One of the arguments for cooperating was that you couldn't lose Wittenberg, right? Who's going to train pastors? Um, this is where the... Uh, <clears throat> the best theologians are. We need the institution. And so this time is fascinating to me. I had a, um, I, I, I don't post on Facebook much anymore, and the reason I don't is people um, in general. But I was thinking about it, and I shared it because I thought it was <clears throat> timely. I've been getting back to doing research, which is fun. Got a couple projects I'm hoping to do. Um, but let me get in my login and see <clears throat> how I put it. And I think it summarizes an aspect of what was going on at this time. Man, my internet is so slow. Um, but you have these two groups that will develop. There will be what is called the Gnesio Lutherans. Gnesio mean, meaning genuine Lutherans. And they are arguing for um, what it is to be a genuine, to be in Luther's tradition genuinely, doctrinally. And then you have what will be called the Philippus because they are seen as um, taking the same kind of moderating tone that Melanchthon will. <clears throat> and some of the debates that break out, Melanchthon will be either directly or inadvertently responsible for. For instance, there will be a debate over the free will. Melanchthon's responsible for this because he, um, in his Lotzi, adds the Holy Spirit as a third cause in conversion. Um, there will be an argument about good works, which is called the majoristic controversy. But major... Is borrowing a John, John Major, yeah, right, George yeah. Major, George Major, excuse me, is borrowing a um, a formula from Melanchthon, one that Melanchthon had disavowed, but um, so they will be called Philippus. And so here is my post, Mike, and you can see what you think. The Gnesio Lutherans weren't perfect, but the way that Wittenberg dealt with them shows that, to not an insignificant degree, institutionalism is about as old as Lutheranism. It also reminds us that some conservatives, in quotes, within Lutheranism have long been willing to sacrifice the gospel to present or save the culture, morality, or a political agenda. <clears throat> what do you think of that? Yeah, I think so. And people might think, well, the Gnesio Lutherans must have been the conservatives because they're trying to hold to Luther's doctrine. But, <clears throat> but normally they get classified as radicals, right, because they're... They're holding out. They're under siege. Um, they are saying that the gospel um, is being uh, emasculated, that it's not being preached radically enough. Um, the real conservatives were those who thought, well, we can't lose Wittenberg, and 
Moritz is our prince now, and so we have to support Moritz's agenda. Um, Romans 13, mm -hmm. and the Gnasio Lutherans are going to come up with the Magdeburg Confession, which is a doctrine of resistance well before the Cal Calvinists came up with one, and the mm -hmm. Calvinists always get credit for this. Um, in many ways, the Calvinists are working with the Magdeburg Confession. Um, uh, we need the institution. We need to preserve the culture that has been established here. We need to support Moritz in the political agenda. We need to bide time um, until we can kind of reverse things with the emperor. Um, rather than just go directly going to um, what is it to be faithful to the gospel? Um, and that's not to say that these men were seeking to be unfaithful. Or I mean, If anyone <coughs> deserves credit for um, Lutheranism's doctrinal heritage after Luther, it's Melanchthon. Mm -hmm. um, Melanchthon did a lot of very important things, and he sacrificed a lot, so I don't, I don't mean to diminish that. Um, <clears throat> but these two groups, and my research interests, uh, are centered in the Gnasio Lutherans. And I would say my sympathies, um, while I have them for some on both sides, uh, are definitely very much with the Gnasio Lutherans, who often, um, while they could be a little bombastic, and they have poor manners, mm -hmm. I think we're often ill-treated as well. And, and maybe just a kind of a side note or a warning. We're not talking about like making an anthill, a molehill into a mountain. We're not talking about something that is insignificant. A secondary doctrine. Here. There certainly are going to be flashpoints that are going to seem, and rightfully so, would be seen as insignificant do you do this or, or not but what they understood was that there was something at stake here and it was the gospel so I, we're not talking about can the can the uh parochial school take milk money from the government right i mean you may may think that that is going to be a slippery slope to to whatever and i respect your opinion on that right. we're talking about something in the past we're going to get an email at least one on this right. i'm guessing fine fine but what i'm saying is this is a little bit different this is this is this is directly to the gospel where maybe some of those other things which uh, there would be certain things that I would stand up that to to maybe you or somebody else may be insignificant, but I really believe that the gospel's at stake here. Mm -hmm. it, and and this is going to sound terrible, but it and gospel reductionist, right? But there's something about fighting for the truth for the sake of the truth, and then there's also something fighting for something where the gospel is at stake here, right? Right. So, um, and then of course, if you mix culture into it. Then you have, it gets a little bit more complicated where maybe I'm fighting for a truth that in the culture where my culture should, should, should do this because it is morally correct and I can marshal all, not only all sorts of biblical passages, but passages, but natural law, all, all this kind of stuff. Right. But is the gospel at stake here? And is the gospel animating this fight? Yeah. So, and, and so I think the lesson from Luther, the more I read Luther, the lesson from Luther when it comes to a lot of this stuff is ask yourself, you know, what happens to the gospel in this, right? You may be absolutely correct and maybe even have a good biblical reason to fight for some political cause. But if you do it to the point where, where that then um, um, supersedes 
of the gospel, pushes the gospel to the side so that people don't see you and your particular congregation or church body as the gospel church anymore, but as the church that fights for this unique thing. Now, it may not be your fault, but you have to ask that question. What you're saying here with Flacius and the Ignatio Lutherans was this has to do with the gospel. With that said, completely different political scene, completely different culture where there is this cultural separation from a secular point of view and and the gospel where you're still all Christian, right? You're still all have a say you still have, uh, when the Prince does something that that is going to affect the church and vice versa in a way that just doesn't happen in America in 2020. Right. And I mean, this will become part of the issue with it is that in some ways the church is being handed over to the state in a way Luther feared it might. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is even the argument that the adiaphoras or interimists will make is, well, you know what? It's okay if there's fasting commanded certain days because the emperor, he could say like no egg Wednesday because our egg supply is low. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone knew the emperor wasn't going to reintroduce fasting because the egg supply was low. It was because it was mm-hmm. part of Roman Catholic um, piety, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um but there was, in some ways, this this handing over, and so the the um, Ignatius Lutherans will argue, some of these things are would be fine if they weren't happening mm-hmm. now. And so Mike likes to identify with um, my book that comes out of my dissertation, um, the Devil Behind the Surplus. In fact, Mike even put a picture of himself. Well, why why did you and take that down? We need to put that back up there again. It got destroyed when that group came through. Oh, I thought it was before that. So just just to fill in those who don't know. Um, you can explain, you know, the whole surplus thing in a yes. second. But I wear a surplus because wearing an alb is like wearing, um, which I also do, but that's like wearing a clip-on tie. You wear, wear the real deal, which is a cassock and a surplus. You'd be the tab collar of clericals. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and uh, so uh, the devil's behind the surplus, your your book title, right? And I Flacius uses the yeah. line, yeah. And, and it's a great line. And I uh, uh, superimposed... A picture of myself with surplus under the title of your book, like the devil behind the surplus. Yeah, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, so if you haven't seen a surplus, most of you have seen it at maybe in like a movie with old old school Catholic altar or like boys an, even. A, an Anglican, you know. That's a, yeah. Yeah, so there's the cassock, which is blue, but sometimes like black. for altar boys, it'd be purple. I mean, yeah, sorry, black. black. Um, with altar boys, sometimes purple or red. Um, the surplus is the white frilly thing that goes over that. Um, and that becomes a big thing because the emperor tries to reintroduce this vestment. Some Lutheran territories have kept it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big deal. Others had gotten rid of it. Um, and uh, Flacius and others will say, we don't care if people want to wear a surplus generally, but if we're told we have to wear mm-hmm. it, now it's an issue <clears throat> because um, the vestments in the worship of the church should be come arise from the free consent of the church immersed in the scriptures about what's Right, everything's permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they say, we're not going to wear this now, and the devil's behind it. And that's the title. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, Flacius will talk about um, lots of things like that where he'll say, normally we would not care, mm-hmm. but because this is being commanded as an integral part of church life, mm-hmm. when it's something that's meant to be an aid or a supplement to church life, um, then it becomes problematic. And, and I, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to be very clear, this is it's it's more than a slippery slope slope argument. It's more than 
of this is a very American. I'm not saying I disagree with this, but it's a very uh, American. Usually on the on the usually on the right, but the left can do this too. Um, once they take one freedom, they're going to take everything right. else. So th- this is often you'll see this with 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 uh, with gun control, right? If you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. So you have to fight for that I'm inch. Take my bazooka. So while I don't necessarily disagree with that as a tactic or or way to to talk about this is something different because a the right. gospel is at stake here right. and because you're saying you're not really christian unless mm-hmm. you do this so now we're talking about the identity of a christian or not we're not just talking about and this is our original point adiaphor is not not really about me and my american freedom it is about the gospel's at stake right. here that's and, the difference and so if, for me to be right with the church if that requires these things and to be right with the church, to be right with God, mm-hmm. I've just, I've ruined the doctrine of justification. And add into there the ecclesiology of <coughs> Roman Catholic Church that you have to be right with the church right. in order to be exactly. right with God. So yeah. we'll talk more about Adia for next time, but Mike described it well. And the way I would put it is it's balancing Christian freedom with Christian love. And we're doing this constant balancing act. And here, um, both Christian freedom and love compel them to say we have to resist this. And also because even... The article of, on justification, which was terrible in the Augsburg interim, and the Leipzig interim, it is still um, moderating. It is, um, it's not great, and so they would say the surplus is just a symptom of, of this, and so <clears throat> you'll have these controversies that will develop, and the big deal will be, um, and this is what I try to show with my book, with the devil behind the surplus. Because there's also a fight about this in England, and I'm less concerned with the English church, but it was good for comparative purposes. Mm-hmm. Flacius and the Gnaser Lutherans are saying, this surplus represents an attack on the gospel. Mm-hmm. John Hooper in England, who will, he was a refugee in Zurich for a while and is coming from a Zwinglian perspective, says, the New Testament doesn't have vestments in it, so we shouldn't wear vestments in the church. Mm-hmm. So Hooper takes it, <clears throat> and it becomes law. Mm-hmm. So he's not battling for freedom. He's inhibiting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I, I can't remember if I put it back in the book, but I took it out of my dissertation because my advisor was like, she's like, it is funny. But, it, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, he talks about, you know, Jesus didn't wear vestments on the cross. Well, Jesus was naked. So I had a mm-hmm. bit where I'm like, using this reasoning, pastor mm-hmm. should properly preach upon a cross and naked. Mm-hmm. You know? um, but um, <clears throat> the... Uh, for the for the Lutheran take on this, this was precisely a fight about grace and justification, um, which is just which is different than a fight of well I don't like that vestment or that vestment. Um, it wasn't that the Gnaseo Lutherans had any trouble with introducing things into the mm-hmm. church that could be helpful, mm-hmm. and so these these <clears throat> disputes that arise become very bitter. People are dying because of these things, right? Um, uh, there's pastors living in the woods who are persecuted for not going along that have uh, <coughs> refugees who are leaving because um, they don't want to have to live under a, um, a church that is already turning its back in their view on um, what God had worked through Luther. And so, um, but what's interesting to me about this period is what they end up fighting about after the, the idea of the controversy, once Moritz turns on the emperor and eventually the emperor is driven out after Magdeburg takes its stand. But these things then lead to debates about, you know, you guys, this compromise formula on the will or on justification or on good works, 
This wasn't good. <laughs> and the Wittenbergers try to defend it. And sometimes they make statements that were incautious. Um, then the Genuizio Lutherans say, that's wrong. And then guess what they sometimes do? Make statements that aren't the most cautious. Mm-hmm. Although the formula of Concord almost always sides with the Genuizio Lutherans while saying like, but you shouldn't say it <clears throat> that way. this way. Um, and so we're going to see there actually these fault lines reveal differences on the very central teachings of the Christian faith and things that um, directly pertain to the gospel. For instance, well, what does free will have to do with the gospel? Well, if I have a free will, the gospel is not gospel. Mm-hmm. It's, it becomes at least in part law mm-hmm. um, because my salvation partly rests in me. Um, <clears throat> the doctrine of election. Well, if, if, if salvation is not by election, then it's not by grace, mm-hmm. at least not entirely by by grace. Um, we'll get to the doctrine of Scripture. <clears throat> That's more with uh, Schwenkfeld, who is kind of just a weird dude and, mm-hmm. and not from the Lutheran camp. But good works, um, uh, Major will say good works are necessary for salvation. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that he means simply the believer will do good works, but but the Ganesha Lutherans say, but that's not what that statement's going to be interpreted as mm-hmm. by the person in the pews. And so Amsdorf will say um, good works are detrimental to salvation, which Luther said. I mean, yep, read the Heidelberg yep, Disputation. Yep. Um, your best works can be mortal sins. Um, but that could be misunderstood too. But what he means is if you're if you're teaching people to do good works to go to heaven, you're doing you're doing violence to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can just briefly hit Maybe, on... Yep. Well, while, oh, you're do, while you're doing that, I'll just have co- comment. Um, so this is not dissimilar to the early church and I hesitate mm-hmm. to make this but there, there are a lot of parallels um, between the early church and, and the Reformation um, where you where you have something radical going on Jesus and the Apostles right and then everything's great right that's great and then well who is Jesus what is this Trinity how do we speak about this right and you you can have people that are gonna go flat out her- heterodox but you're also going to have a lot of people who mean well who who believe in an orthodox way but say things that can be misinterpreted and so it becomes very much about parsing language and being very careful and that that can be very frustrating because sometimes there is nice poetic license in a sermon in a hymn um, in a treatise um, and and you have to have to constantly explain it all the time but yet there are times when you have to be very careful, right? So when, you know, for instance, like Luther is going to say free will, you know, exists only in name only. Well, okay, what do you mean by that, right? Um, good works are necessary for salvation. What do you mean by that, right? And so after a burst of, okay, this is, this is fantastic, this is new, this is fresh, this is changes things, there's some there's some cleanup work in 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 future generations, right? Um, and I think you can see that in in politics as well, right? Um, even uh, you know a, an American Constitution, Bill of Rights. Yeah. Well, then what does that mean, right? There's going to be a period where uh, you you have to you have to figure out a lot of things, close loopholes. Um, make sure that people understood correctly about these things. So this is kind of the natural course of events, I think, that, that occurs. 
And um, I think you did a good job pointing out that here are the major ones and connecting them to, okay, this is about the gospel. This is what, this is why this thing that seems so insignificant is important. The, uh, I got a text while you were talking. That's why I kept talking because you weren't ready to talk. From our, uh, our friend, Pastor Daniel Lindner. And he said, happy let the bird fly anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I said, it is. And I looked in our first episode, it's April 4th. So that's coming up. We're going to have to commemorate mm-hmm. that. But I guess I must have called and but talked to him on this day and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. And he mm-hmm. said, do it. And that's when Ben and Peter and I must have launched it mm-hmm. today. He said he put it on his calendar. So Yeah, very nice. That was how many five years? years? Five years ago. <clears throat> it wasn't very good until Michael joined. What's, uh, what's five-year anniversary? Is that paper? I'm not sure. But we should do something. I'll get you. If it's not gold or something, which it's not, I'll get you. If we record on April 4th, we got to remember to mention it on the episode. But, all right, if I can just, to keep the session from going too long, run down a list. So An Uncompromising Gospel is a book that came out of, um, I was invited to present to the Nebraska uh, (coughs) district of our synod. Um, Earl Trepto and Phil Hirsch, two wonderful. Fifth anniversary is wood. Is it? So I will. Uh, Paul Bunyan trophy is made of wood. Made of wood. So, um, well, make me a a sculpture out of wood. Um, The uh, I had been invited down and I got five hours, and I gave what probably has to be one of the longest conference papers. (laughs) It was a paper. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I didn't read the whole thing, but it was hundred some pages. And uh, you didn't present. You get a paper. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeez. I enjoyed it. Did anybody else? I don't know. People drank beer and talked with me after <laughs> in Christian freedom. The second anniversary is fiber, by the way. That seems very odd. Like, here's some brand, dear. Yeah. Raisin, here's Brazen brand. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Okay. So what I do in an uncompromising gospel is I start with, um, well, what, in my view, was the kernel of the gospel um, for Luther um, that then leads to all these different debates. And so I discuss the Heidelberg Disputation and um, the bondage of the will. And I think um, the will and election is, are, is at the heart um, of um, how Luther views the gospel. And I think at least on the Heidelberg Disputation, you would agree with me, Michael, because you use that regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the controversies that we go through. And I think this is what we'll do in the, the upcoming sessions. <clears throat> Adiaphoristic controversy. So what is adiaphora? Synergistic controversy over free will. Um, so why are they fighting over if we have a free will? <coughs> Majoristic controversy over good works. Are they necessary for salvation? Then the Oseandrian controversy over justification. Is it an internal thing or an external? Maybe we'll do the dispute with Schrenkfeld over Scripture, but that one's not so much a Lutheran fighting. And then the fallation controversy over original sin. Um, if you end up, if you're interested in an, un- an uncompromising gospel, you can get it through 1517 or Amazon. It's not a terribly long read. It's about 104 pages. And the section we'll be doing will basically be going from about um, page 47 to about 79. So if this is something you're interested in following along for um, you could order it if you wanted. You don't have to. Um, but it's. I would say it's not too hard of a read if you yeah. want to follow yeah. along. Um, so that's kind of where we'll be going, the trajectory um, to to lead up to. Um, I think you mentioned it in the last session already, but it's often said 
Without what the the first Martin wouldn't have. Without the second Martin, what the first Martin did would have been lost. Yeah, so we're going to make our way to the formula of Concord. One of the main contributors to that will be Martin Chemnitz. Yeah. Um, and so kind of seeing the formula of Concord as this, you know, Lutheranism's grand attempt to encapsulate mm-hmm. um, what it is to be a Lutheran in these matters that were under dispute. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, 1530 is a red letter date, uh, the Augsburg Confession. If, if there is a birthday of the Lutheran Church, that's probably it. Um, although they're still holding on hopes that, you know, they're still thinking this is one church. Um, but I think 1580 is kind of another big red letter date. Like that's kind of the close of a certain era. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this is, uh, pretty heady stuff you know you have chemnitz and the uh the examen the examination of the council of trent and so things are things are things are starting to move to a more systematic uh way of laying out everything in a very thorough way of uh the evangelical theology so uh it, it really is it's a decade or it's a century right from luther's from luther's birth to um um, to to the formula about yep. almost a century. So, yeah. So hopefully you find these useful. I'm debating. Um, I might change. It'll be the same series, but I'm thinking of changing. You know, the title for the series that goes before the topic. What do you think of keeping the numbering, but instead of the life of Luther, now life after Luther. Whatever you want to do. It's your podcast. I have freedom. It's your podcast. But I just didn't want to toss out an adiaphron yeah. without first consulting you to. I know it's permissible. I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if you think it would be beneficial. Oh, uh, that that would be fine uh, to have a separate, separate one. That's fine. And I'll keep the numbering, but maybe just yeah. to distinguish. Sure. All right. You got anything else to share? <clears throat> no, I think this will this will be this will be good for us to. I, I just don't want to leave it. So many times we go here. Here is this person, and then he dies or she dies. Well, there are ramifications, right? And so at least to give a get us to. The, the early kind of the, those first few decades and sort of, you know, we'll skip some stuff, but eventually kind of, kind of uh, formula of Concord 1580 say, this is, this is kind of an end of it. This is a transition period for, um, for the, for the history of the church. So, and I will say thank you to those um, who have been liking, sharing, subscribing. Um, it's been fun to see some of the new reviews. Um, our numbers seem to be, now that we're getting back more regular, seem to be doing uh, pretty well. It seems to indicate we've maybe picked up some new listeners and we've kept old ones, which we're very thankful for. So we um, we appreciate you bearing with us <clears throat> and listening. would encourage you, if you haven't still, really appreciate if you can on Apple Podcasts, if you listen there. Um, give us a rating. Give us a review. Um, kind of helps us pop up in searches, um, maybe helps someone who's on the fence about should I listen to this thing or not do so. We've had some fun ratings. I have to um, I have to give credit where credit is due. We got a very nice one this week, Michael. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, as someone who has struggled with evangelical Christianity of late, I have found great joy and peace <coughs> um, and the right amount of challenge from Mike and Wade and Gus. And I like that they don't mention Jason. Um, their banter and wackiness helps offset the weightiness of some of the topics they tackle on the regular. I mostly appreciate their thoughtful approach to difficult and potentially divisive subjects. And I think that's a downright nice mm-hmm. 
nice review um, and is encouraging for us. But we have a, a couple that have, have been pretty funny too. Um, I have one that says, great podcast, but five stars, like 100% is only for Jesus. Mm-hmm. But the listeners clearly listen to me talk about it. I don't give 100% in classes. That's what I've been saying the whole time, that we should get four stars. Yeah. Um, the uh, where was We have one. Would have given it five stars if it didn't get Lord of the Dance stuck in my head. Remember when I was humming that in the background? <laughs> I you remember. Said something. Um, <laughs> five stars for high-quality academic theological discussion, variety of topics, and refreshingly informal style. I learn and laugh a lot. Um, you never know what you're going to get, but you can always benefit from you. The show really grows on you as you get to know the different hosts and their personalities. I uh, appreciate the reviews. They're super helpful. Thank you for the encouragement. And those of you who haven't yet... If you're able to, that is great. Um, I was trying to find. Uh, I know Peter has a way to to do it, I thought. Um, when we started the Life of Luther series, <coughs> to, um, well, we've done 60. So, I mean, it's obviously, it's been a long time, but what year do you think we started this in Michael? 2019. I'm trying to let me go back and see. So we still in the 30s there. Um, I should have I should have done this ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is dead air. Okay. Well, say something while I do this real quick. Um, like 40 seconds of content. How about this? Um, I don't know that we're ready just to pick up another winging it series. It is. You know, in a, in a normal week, which is not always possible, we do two sessions, which is kind of a lot. But uh, we've done, uh, we did worship, we did a brief church history, and now we did this extended Luther one. But we're not opposed to, if you have some ideas, yep. like not just one episode, but like what's a string of stuff. I don't know that we would be super enthralled just because we're, neither of us are uh exegetes there like going through a you know chapter by chapter book and there are plenty of podcasts that do that yep. including 1517 but you know if there is something out there maybe i can't think of anything on the top of our head and but. we do have some episode topics we plan to get back to some people shared some good ones on facebook um when we get suggestions the first thing we do we is when we talk about we say are we equipped to do it mm-hmm. is it in our wheelhouse enough and then b um how much prep would we want to do so some of them we're saving for when uh, when we got time to maybe do some reading. Um, and then third, I think we ask, uh, can we behave if we do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, will Will Wade get us in trouble? There's quite a few, quite a few episodes yeah. that have never we've never attempted. Because but I've of been that. checking the the email almost daily, and oh, you can good. email us at podcast at letthebirdfly.com, podcast at letthebirdfly.com. Um, if you do have suggestions, and Michael. We started the Life of Luther series December 16th of 2018. All right, so it's pretty close. Three and a half years. Yeah. And we thought we thought probably 50. I mean, we, we knew that it's going to take a while, and then yeah. for a while, and like, it's going to be 75. What are we at now? 60? Don't worry about that. That's fine. How about this? Um, We're at 60. All right. This is 61. Very good. All right. Thank you for listening. We've kept you too long. Until next time, let the bird fly. Let the bird fly.
evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a janky I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down 